podcasting from Harrisburg, the capital of Pennsylvania. Hello and welcome to Sanity Sessions for Sisters, keeping it together when you want to fall apart, a forum for women of color to discuss mental health and well-being topics. This is your host, Dr. Dawn Galette Crossan, a native of Philadelphia and a licensed psychologist and certified trauma therapist. And while I'm excited that you have tuned in, and I hope that you glean from this podcast, it is not to be substituted for a relationship with a licensed mental health professional. What's up, my sisters and those brothers that are listening? Welcome to Sanity Sesh Episode 1. I'm so grateful that you had an opportunity to tune in today with me. I'm excited about the topic we will be discussing. As I mentioned in the intro, I am a certified trauma-focused CBT therapist, and I thought it would be fitting to start off our sanity sessions with exploring trauma. So today's sesh will focus on trauma in the Black community and generational trauma. Firstly, let's start with defining trauma. Now, trauma can have a very complex definition. Now, over the years, the research has expanded, and we as therapists have grown to understand trauma in a very different light. But simply put, trauma is a deep emotional wound, a deep emotional wound. In addition to being a trauma therapist, I also serve on the ACE Steering Committee in Harrisburg. Now, ACE stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences, meaning experiences that could be considered traumatic in some manner or deeply emotionally wounding. Both of these opportunities have really afforded me the chance to witness the growth in the body of research, to read a lot of it, because as a trauma therapist, I want to keep up on all the new information and data that's coming out, and also to become more familiar with how trauma has expanded in terms of the definition over the last decade. One of the findings that is relatively new, and when I say new, I mean within the last five to 10 years, it's been emerging through the, through the research is this term called toxic stress, toxic stress. And that's the body's response when it's exposed to chronic, frequent, adverse circumstances, such as physical and sexual abuse, poverty, neglect, domestic violence, and the like which in turn can damage the brain, causing a person to have learning and thinking problems, poor judgment, poor impulse control, lack of emotional regulation, and difficulties with sustaining healthy and positive relationships. In addition, the research indicates that low-income children and African-American children are more likely to have stressful childhoods. In fact, there is disproportionate toxic stress among African-Americans as compared to our white counterparts and among lower level income children as compared to higher socioeconomic status children. And this trauma can mimic other mental health disorders. So what you will see, especially in our brown boys, is a diagnosis of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or oppositional defiant disorder. Then they are placed on medication But what is actually happening is that the child is being traumatized or have experienced trauma that hasn't been treated. So the medication is not going to help because the underlying root problem is not being addressed. The bottom line, toxic stress comes from toxic environments. It's just that simple. So if you are African-American or living in low-income situations, your adverse child experiences or your ACE score is at a greater risk of being high. 
These elevated scores are highly correlated with medical diagnoses and disease such as diabetes, cancer, hypertension, asthma, and even premature death. So basically, y'all, a history of trauma that isn't properly treated can lead to chronic health problems and shorter life expectancy. That is why it is so, so important to address unresolved trauma. When I became aware that trauma was related to premature death and sickness and disease, it compelled me to want to do more to help people to heal. It compelled me to take a look at my life and make sure any trauma that I may have experienced has been resolved and dealt with. Trauma just doesn't go away, y'all. We have to do the work. We have to do the work to ensure that we are our best versions of ourselves. And we have to do the work so that we don't pass this down to generation after generation. We have to get the help that we need. All right. So why is it that trauma is much more likely to occur in black communities? Why is that so? Y'all, that is a loaded question. A loaded question. Just like that loaded baked potato that we order when we're in a restaurant, this question is loaded as well, but it has zero calories, right? But it's nonetheless heavy. This is a heavy topic. So we are not able to cover all the possible reasons in this one episode, and we're definitely going to revisit this topic down the line because it is such a vast topic. But we do want to take a moment and kind of delve into two of the possible reasons. One is discrimination. Now, unfortunately, our media... Um, social media, we we are inundated with different forms of discrimination, racial discrimination, sexual discrimination, just uh, body type discrimination. It's, 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 we're flooded with it. So we are not unfamiliar with this topic, but discrimination is one of the ones we're going to delve into as well as segregated housing. You know, when I hear that term segregated housing, I often think of the 60s. But segregated housing still exists in this day and time. It's a little undercover, but it's still there. And it's sad, but it's the truth. So those are the two that we are going to look into a little bit further for just a few minutes. Okay, discrimination. People of color are more likely to be subject to police violence, racial profiling by law enforcement, and unwarranted attention by police officers. Even if the child themselves aren't the victim of these police practices, exposure to these events happening to their parents and family members can be just as traumatizing. In addition, at school, our brown children, especially our boys, are suspended at a higher rate than their white counterparts for lesser offenses. We see it all the time, people, on TV and social media. One of our brown children refuses to do something in school. They are labeled rebellious and defiant. They are often suspended and sent home. But if their white peer does a similar behavior or worse, engages in physical aggression, their labels are often empowering and positive. Sometimes you will hear them depicted as a leader standing for what is right. Their consequences are much less harsh. It may not even result in a suspension. Our brown children have been ostracized, teased, and sent home for their hair being too black. Now, how can your hair be too black? It's the hair God gave us. But now I'm being criticized and kicked out of an educational institution because I'm embracing the natural texture of my hair. It makes no sense. But we see incidents like this all over social media and the news. But these types of experiences weren't considered trauma years ago. But now we're starting to see the devastating effects of how 
having to face that every day, whether it be at work or at school, constantly facing the criticism, the the punishment for being who you are, a person of color, how it can tear you down and become toxic and even be considered trauma. All right, let's switch gears and take a look at segregated housing, segregated housing. No other race in the United States has lived in low income, racially segregated housing over multiple generations, multiple generations at the rate of African-Americans. Historically, banks had procedures in place to deny African-Americans and people of color certain housing opportunities. And those procedures were considered redlining, redlining. Now, that is the systematic denial of various services to residents of specific communities, such as certain racial communities, as well as select communities of a social economic status. This can occur directly or through selective raising of prices. So that meant many banks were refusing to offer mortgages or would offer worse mortgages rates to people in certain neighborhoods based upon their race. It was also happening with healthcare and even supermarkets. And even though, y'all, it was outlawed in 1968, it still happens throughout our country to this day. Then we have gentrification. And that's when our urban communities start to see more wealthier people move in, which results in housing prices increasing and often displacing less advantaged people from their homes. So you'll see these wealthier people move into these urban neighborhoods that used to be considered, let's say, the hood. And then the people that have been there all their lives that bought homes or they're, or they're renting homes have to move out because prices go up so much they can't even afford to stay in the places that they chose to live. So because of all of that, property values were lower and therefore school districts in these areas had limited funding for proper education. These neighborhoods generally don't have access to adequate health care, often lack public transportation and access to employment outside of the immediate area. All of this, y'all, all of this can lead to toxic stress on parenting, resulting in less protective parenting skills, the poverty experience, the lack of resources, food, finances, increases the rate of incarceration among our men, which is damaging to the mental health and physical health of the men incarcerated, but also damaging to their families and their children. So parents now are in a situation where they have less resources. Then you'll start to see more social dysfunction. Social dysfunction starts to breed at a rapid rate just to cope with everything that's going on, just to get by. So then you'll see joblessness, alcohol and substance abuse, welfare dependency, single parenthood, and violence. So the parents just have less resources because of redlining, gentrification. They have less resources to buffer the traumatic effects of their environments. Whew, that was a lot. But in a nutshell, Because African-Americans and people of color are at a higher rate of being discriminated against and being placed into segregated housing situations, we are more likely and most susceptible to being traumatized. It's just that simple. So another concept that we want to look into um, briefly is epigenetics. And this uh, concept is going to lead us right into our discussion on generational trauma. So epigenetics is um, a, a more recent theory that suggests that we can actually pass trauma down or we or our children can inherit trauma. So what this theory is saying is that trauma can leave a chemical mark on a person's genes without mutating it, hence passing it down to subsequent generations. So what it's also um, asserting is that 
In someone's lifetime, a significant traumatic event can change the way their DNA is expressed and how that change can be passed on to the next generation. Now, that's some steep stuff. Not only can we ourselves experience trauma, but we can pass it down to our grandchildren, great grandchildren, and so forth or furthermore. Now, this theory is relatively new and the findings are scarce, but the data is emerging and growing and a lot of study is going into it. And it's also considered to be a bit controversial. But either way, most people would argue that people of color still experience the repercussions of slavery, whether we want to coin it as epigenetics or not. So that leads us into our discussion about generational trauma, generational trauma. So events such as slavery, the Holocaust, genocide of the Native Americans are all examples of generational trauma. Generational trauma is trauma that targeted a specific group of people and affects family members that didn't directly experience the trauma. So that means it affects the grandchildren of slaves, uh, the grandchildren of those who experienced the Holocaust, the the grandchildren and great-grandchildren of those who went through the genocide of the Native American Indian. Now, generational trauma can also be physical and sexual in nature. So, for instance, a mother who was sexually abused or or physically abused is more likely to have a child that will be sexually abused or physically abused. And it's thought mainly to be because of the sexual trauma impacting the way the mother's parent, making the child more vulnerable to sexual trauma. And then that child becomes an adult and his or her child is at higher risk for sexual trauma and the cycle continues to repeat itself. So if a mother has experienced sexual abuse, didn't get proper treatment, and then goes on to have a child, that child is at an increased rate to be sexually or physically abused. That's the research. And what I found while treating mothers and children of sexual and physical abuse is that oftentimes the mother's boundaries may be slightly off, just a little bit off, and it's modeled to the children. And so those who didn't receive treatment um, as a result of their trauma and did not seek the treatment that they needed or didn't get proper treatment, they tend to easily trust demonstrate poor judgment in romantic and platonic relationships. They tend to be impulsive in relationships, um, becoming really serious and committed with someone without a length of time of really getting to know one another. And in all of this sends off subliminal signals to perpetrators that the child and parent in particular mothers are available for victimization. See, what we have to remember is that perpetrators prey on vulnerabilities. They prey on vulnerabilities. They are looking for ways in to harm someone. And so what happens is once a parent has been traumatized and haven't received proper treatment, they tend to send off these messages, these poor boundaries that someone else who may not have been traumatized wouldn't necessarily send off. These boundaries tend to be very, very loose. So let's bring generational trauma more current. Okay, the research supports that entire black communities suffer after police shootings. So the entire black community can suffer after police shootings. And we have had our fair share of police shootings over the last 10 years. So the shooting of our black men in the streets, Baltimore, Baton Rouge, Ferguson, and St. Paul, among many others, can be considered traumatic to entire black communities, which is another form of generational trauma. African-American mothers reported feeling increased anxiety for their sons after such. Many black men reported increased paranoia, 
I am a mother of two African-American sons. And I will tell you, my heart would pound when my sons would go out into the community shortly after these shootings took place, especially when we would visit Florida. I would have some serious anxiety about that. The shootings triggered mental health symptoms in many black people across the United States. One study showed that police shootings showed a population level impact on the mental health of black Americans as a whole. Not to mention the 24 hour a day news coverage that we have access to when these type of horrific events occur. Now, yes, Those news stations provide information and we may be more informed, but how much of that is traumatic to watch repeatedly over and over again in explicit detail? I'm just saying, I'm just saying that's food for thought, y'all food for thought. So we know that African-Americans are more likely to be traumatized. We realize that we are at higher risk at being traumatized due to being people of color. So if that's the case, and we know all of this, and those reasons may be because of segregated housing or discrimination, many others that we didn't cover in this particular episode, but I promise you we will revisit. But if we are at a higher risk, why is it that we are less likely to receive treatment as compared to our white counterparts? Again, another loaded question. Another loaded question that we can't possibly cover all in this episode. But one of the reasons why that African-Americans and people of color are less likely to receive mental health services as compared to their white counterparts is because there is a lack of diversity in those treating people of color. There aren't enough people of color in the field, y'all, to treat us. That is why. One of the reasons why. Black Americans make up only 4% of psychologists in America. That's not a lot of us. That is not a lot of us. And another reason is that those therapists out there that are treating blacks that are not necessarily people of color, they lack what we call cross-cultural skills. Now, cross-cultural skills, cross-cultural skills is the ability to work with and relate with others from different cultural backgrounds. So then we have people out here that are not necessarily people of color. And you don't have to be a person of color to treat someone else. Though the research supports that people of color like to have someone from their cultural background to relate to, to help them, to, that understand them better. You don't necessarily have to be a person of color, but you should understand the people that you are treating. You should understand their culture. Without cross-cultural skills, the person of color may feel that they cannot connect or relate to the therapist. And so that person may be least likely to continue services or to receive future treatment for a trauma or other mental health diagnoses. What we have seen in therapists that are not of color, oftentimes, and not every therapist, but this is what we have seen in the research. And this is what some people of color have reported when they are in therapy sessions with non-blacks, that there tends to be an empathy gap. The empathy gap, meaning a failure to believe when people of color say that they're hurting or this hurts me. We saw this last year in 2018 with Serena Williams when she just gave birth and reported that she thought she was about to die and the medical system did not heed to what she was saying. So this empathy gap that we see in therapy can cause 
people of color not to even want to try. Why am I going to go sit across from someone, a therapist, who first does not understand me, does not understand my culture. Then when I share with them what I'm going through, they either minimize or do not believe that what I'm saying is true. In addition to the empathy gap, we also have found that there is an inherent lack of trust for the system that is commonly shared among people of color, an inherent lack of trust. The unethical human experience experiments against people of color, such as Tuskegee, are prime examples of why we as people don't trust the system. So not only do we feel that some of the therapists that we see are not relatable or understand us or lack cross-cultural skills, but then we also feel a certain amount of empathy gap where they're not believing what we're saying. They don't uh, take our reports as valid as well as a lack of trust. So these are three of the main reasons why we do not tend to see people of color receive treatment. So what do we do? What do we do? If you feel that you have been traumatized in any manner, or if you feel that you just need someone to talk to, period, go to therapy. Go to therapy. Black people, it's imperative that we seek the help we need to buffer the impact of trauma on our future generations, as well as untreated mental health. Seek out a licensed mental health professional. If you prefer a person of color or a person from your culture, but find that there are none available in your area, please know that there are also good therapists out there that may not be African-American, Hispanic, or from your ethnic background, but possess a really good working knowledge of other cultures. If you are seeking out mental health services, whether it's for trauma or not, you want to ask plenty of questions, plenty of questions. Some of these questions can be answered by office staff. Some of these questions, you may have to set up an initial meeting with the therapist to ask, but it's important to ask questions so you can make an informed decision about your therapist. Some examples of questions that can be asked can include, are you familiar or accustomed to working with different populations? What can you tell me about the different populations that you have worked with? Do you have difficulty working with certain age groups? What type of therapy do you provide? How long have you been in the field? Those are just a few. You can write up a list of good questions that you would want to know about your therapist in terms of the services that he or she can provide. Any good therapist would not be offended and would actually respect those questions and maybe even welcome them. I know I do because that lets me know that the person that I am serving is taking their mental health care seriously. And then lastly, no matter what, no matter how frustrated you get, don't give up. Keep searching. There is a therapist out there that can give you what you need. Keep searching until you find the right therapist for you. Well, there you have it. This week's Sanity Sesh. I hope you enjoyed our time together. Subscribe to our podcast on Google Play, Spotify, or iTunes. And connect with us at Sanity Sessions for Sisters at gmail.com. And don't forget to join me next week for our Sanity Sesh. Stay healthy. And remember, change your thinking, change your life.